there were approximately 90 some odd different species that the government was interacting with. And that's, that has grown. Now, 2022, actually in the last, let's say 20 years, that's been reduced to just maybe five or six different groups that they interact with. The others have been, let's say, expelled by the reptilians because they don't want them interfering here. So with the reptilians in particular, what was it about the Montauk project that they were interested in? Were they, I know you mentioned 300,000 children and adults. Were they interested in the genetics and, and how genetics could be used for these kind of uh, time travel portal experiments? Or what else was it that the reptilians in particular in were interested in? The reptilian race, and by the way, there's more than one type of reptilian race. These were the, from the Draco Empire. They have an agenda to fan out through creation and assimilate and to occupy all. For them, that is their, lack of better term, holy mission of their existence. They believe they are the superior race and that all others are inferior and they need to either control them or change them. The reptilians, this particular race, are androgynous, meaning male and female in the same body. And that's why, Michael, we are seeing uh, an agenda to create androgynous people on this planet, where boys are told they're girls, and girls will tell their boys and you want to be a giraffe you could be a giraffe I and mean, you could just there's no identity anymore when you remove the identity of a person then you can control them because they don't know who they are so you tell them who they are and you tell them what they can do and that's what unfortunately is happening on our planet you're listening to exopolitics today with dr michael sala your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. It's my great delight to welcome Stuart Swerdlow to Exopolitics Today. Stuart has been involved in some very important projects that have been run clandestinely by the secret government. And one of those was the Montauk project that uh, ran from the 1970s into the early 80s. And so he knows a lot about it. He was directly involved. So welcome, Stuart, to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, there's a lot of people in my audience that really don't know anything about Montauk. So maybe you can just explain what, what, what is the Montauk project and how did you get involved? Okay. Montauk Project was an outgrowth of the Cold War and actually World War II. As people may know, during uh, World War II, uh, the Nazis were the enemy. After World War II, the Russians became the enemy. And then, of course, there was uh, the UFOs that would appear in the sky, which is an entirely other topic but the U.S. also used it to uh, promote some kind of fear in the public so that they could uh, get money for military and so on. Um, it's a very old story that actually goes back many centuries of uh, the, the few 
elite or royal people, and I use that term loosely, who need to control large amounts of people. And the Germans especially realize that when you're just a few million technically against billions, armies and weapons are not enough. So the best way to control people is through programming and mind control. And so that is how the Montauk project began. Uh, they chose uh, the Montauk Point area of Eastern Long Island, New York, uh, which if you look at a map, you can see New York City and then this fish-shaped island towards the east with the fins sticking out towards the Atlantic Ocean. And on the southern point, that's Montauk Point, uh, which was inhabited by the Montauk Indians. And interestingly enough, the Montauk Indians are the only tribes in North America that call their leader Pharaoh. And there's evidence that they perhaps were descendants of the ancient Egyptians who actually traveled much further than people realize. And so Montauk area was developed actually back in 1799 by George Washington when he was concerned of a British invasion of North America. And so at the very eastern point of Long Island, he created a, a, a storehouse for weapons, a base uh, and a lighthouse. And over the decades that was expanded and expanded, especially through the 1800s. And unfortunately, the American government appropriated the land from the Montauk Indians, sent them away. And actually, after the Civil War, forced some of the native or the slaves that had been released to go to this area, intermarry with the Montauk Indians, and so that they would be a mixed race. The point being that under US law, if there is a native tribe where there are less than 100 pure members, they're no longer considered a tribe and they forfeit their land and rights. And that's exactly what happened to the Montauk Indians. And so the government appropriated this uh, area, especially in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, and they started expanding the underground area of the Montauk Lighthouse until it was quite a few layers deep. What happened was, as they dug under the area, they actually found evidence of a superior civilization. And on the beach to the south and west of Montauk Point, in those days, there was the tops of what looked like pyramids sticking out of the sand. And the government said that these were built by the natives uh, centuries ago, but of course they were not. And during the hurricane of 1938, the ocean and the storms actually buried the remains of those pyramids so that they're no longer visible on the surface. But the government had kept digging and digging underneath and actually created an underground submarine base. And uh, they found that there was a huge uh, technological pyramid under this area with equipment, devices, etc., which we know came from the time of Atlantis. Montauk area is actually the top of a mountain. And it is the remains of an archipelago that extended from this area down to what is now the Caribbean, where the Atlantean uh, 
continent used to exist. I'm just giving you a very detailed background of what happened. And so they found this technology. They started developing the space, especially after World War II. And in fact, in World War II, the local uh, population of Montauk would see German U-boats coming in towards the coastline, sinking below the ocean. And then days later, they would see them leaving. Nobody stopped them. So at some level of government, the United States and the Germans are actually working together. And that's something difficult for people to accept, but quite frankly, it's true even today. And so after uh, the 50s and the 60s, when the Cold War was becoming very uh, intense and the so-called so Soviet threat was becoming intense, the, they built uh, air force bases in strategic points along the east and west coast. One of them was in the uh, Montauk base area and it's called uh, Camp Hero. And uh, there they installed SAGE radar, which was supposed to identify Soviet aircraft coming towards the American coastline. However, during the mid to late 60s, SAGE radar became obsolete. And many of these bases were actually either changed or converted to something else or closed. Montauk base became almost like a derelict base. And then the government in late 1960s took it over for experimental purposes covertly. And they extended the space to nine levels underneath the ground. And they decided that they were going to take the German scientists that were brought here under Project Paperclip after the war, who were very proficient in the development of mind control and programming for human, human beings. And they brought them to this location, added the alien technology that had been accumulated over the previous decades, and the Montauk project began. Now, in the, that was about 1970 is when it actually officially began. The whole project ran from 1970 to 1983. And in the beginning, they used for experimental purposes, people who they considered to be uh, expendable, people that no one would miss. So for example, they would use uh, uh, children of alcoholics, foster children, orphans that nobody had adopted. They would even drive into uh, New York City and pick up uh, uh, homeless people on the street and bring them for experimental purposes. And uh, if you might recall back in, I guess it was the 80s and 90s, uh, they had these milk containers with missing people on them. And many of those people, unfortunately, especially the children, were used in this Montauk project. Initially, they did experimentation involving programming, picking up where the Germans left off, so to speak. They also did uh, uh, electromagnetic experiments, weather manipulation, advanced weaponry testing and development. And eventually, they actually got into time travel and interdimensional travel. And this was over the series of, let's say, the first seven to eight years of the project. 
And here again, they used expendable people. They would send them through the portals to see where they would end up. Mind you, uh, peripheral to all of this, the US government, other governments were in contact with alien civilizations for a very long time and got equipment and, and, and technology. One of the things that they received were coordinates into deep space and also into alternate realities so that you could travel from point A to point B instantaneously. And that's a whole nother technological aspect. And they found out that the coordinates that were given to them by certain alien groups were incorrect. They were not uh, the proper uh, coordinates. So then they began the, the process of developing their own uh, a series of, net, of, of, of development points. So they would send a person to a specific uh, frequency and uh, see if the person came back. And then eventually they would have what we called an anchor, uh, which was a device that uh, connected to the frequencies of the Montauk base so that uh, the person who would go there would leave this anchor and then return. And then they would have a direct path to these locations in time and space uh, without having to develop it over again. Well, there's a lot there to, to kind of like um, just uh, look at and unpack. Now, one of the things uh, you mentioned was this SAGE uh, radar uh, program that was used during the Cold War to track aircraft. But uh, in my kind of like uh, cursory reading of the Montauk project, that was repurposed for both mind control and for time travel use. So can you explain about that SAGE radar dish and, and how that was repurposed for the Montauk program? Yes, and again, I'm not a, a, a technical person, so I can't give you the details about it, but correctly, this, the, this, the um, antenna, which looked kind of like a curved uh, metallic net, if you will, that was on top of this very tall, uh, concrete building, uh, it would be used to transmit uh, frequencies into the atmosphere or actually into the earth itself. Uh, initially, they did this to alter weather patterns. So you would notice during the 60s, actually 70s and 80s, there were many hurricanes that were diverted on the east coast of the United States and went directly towards Montauk Point because they were testing how to drive uh, uh, a storm, so to speak, or, or manipulate, expand it, and so on. And other things that they did was to uh, bounce frequencies off of the ionosphere so that they would then be directed to a specific target elsewhere on the planet for purposes of uh, mind control, weather manipulation, and so on. And this was a precursor to the, uh, the network uh, that they, they put in Alaska and even Northern Norway, uh, which was to create a, a web of, uh, of, uh, of like a matrix around the, the ionosphere of the planet uh, so that they could pinpoint certain locations for whatever they were targeting. And um, anyway, um, I don't know if I answered the question yeah, that's, yeah, that's good. Uh, I just wanted to know, 
also like the you said that uh, people running the Montauk project were given coordinates by aliens in space and yes. they sent these expendables uh, through those whatever it was a, a portal or a device. So can you describe anything? Uh, can you describe what kind of a device it was, what kind of portal it was that people were being sent through to these coordinates and you know what would happen to them and did, did some people come back and yeah. Initially, they received technology from the beings from the star system of Sirius A. The beings from Sirius A, from the perspective of our government, had the highest technology that they could find. And the Syrians would exchange that. They were kind of like intergalactic merchants, for better, lack of a better word. They didn't care about uh, who's, who was the good side, the bad side, or what have you. They just cared about what they were going to get out of it as far as their uh, ability to uh, receive merchandise and trade and, and so on. And uh, we found out, uh, for example, that they gave us the wrong or incorrect information. So when we sent someone, uh, let's say as an example, they said we'd go to the underground of Mars, when in fact that person would wind up inside a rock or in deep space or under the ocean and would die. And uh, we learned a lesson in the Philadelphia experiment, which was in 1943. Um, and you may have heard that story because there's a connection between the Philadelphia experiment and the Montauk project. Um, back in 1943, the government was using Tesla uh, electromagnetic devices to create invisibility cloaks for their uh, ships and air aircraft. And uh, there was one ship called the USS Liberty which was docked in the Philadelphia Naval Yard. And they had put the equipment on there to test it. And when they turned the equipment on, um, the ship leaped out of physical reality, went into what we call hyperspace. Human beings and physical objects are not designed to go into hyperspace. So it created a very big uh, issue. The sailors on board, would walk through what were walls that were now just energy. And then when the ship became solid again, many of those uh, people were embedded in floors, walls, ceilings, and so on. However, there were three uh, people who had jumped overboard and wound up at the Montauk Project in 1983, 40 years in the future from them. It, it created a time loop because the Montauk Project and the Philadelphia Experiment were emitting huge electromagnetic pulses at the same time in time and space. And so they linked together into a loop. And that loop uh, still exists. You, it's considered uh, to be a, a, a roadway or a, a vortex between two points in time and space. And at this point, I need to clarify the difference between what science called wormhole and a vortex. They, they're actually two different things, although they're similar. A wormhole creates a shortcut between point A and point B within the same reality. A vortex creates a shortcut between point A and B between different realities. So that is the difference. So when we discuss wormholes and vortices, uh, uh, that we must keep in mind.
and people interchange them and it's not correct. So just in um, better understanding what, what happened between the Philadelphia experiment and the Montauk project. Now, I, I think it was the USS Eldridge, right? Uh, where where the, mm -hmm. that was involved in that. And the three sailors that um, somehow jumped off the ship and ended up at Montauk, uh, were they uh, Al Billick and Duncan Cameron? Uh, were they two? Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 And and there were more. There was more than one ship. The Eldridge is the most famous of them, and uh, that was uh, let's say the worst result, uh, causing the most death. And by the way, many many years later, um, I was doing work in uh, Oregon. And a gentleman came to see me who was not on the schedule and he claimed to be a courier at that time for the US government. And he told me that some of the sailors who actually did survive became mentally incapacitated and were sent to a, a facility high up in the mountains of central Oregon and their families were told that they had been killed in the war. And so then there was nobody to present to them, but they had been studied for decades after to see the results of these experiments. Um, I assume by now they're not around anymore, but I don't know. Um, over the years, I have gotten many confirmations. In fact, I'm working currently with a physicist from France who actually works or did work at NASA, very high up level at NASA. And he told me that he actually worked in the Montauk project and that confirmed all of this. And, and people I have been meeting uh, in military and government over the years have also confirmed this to me. And I suspect that uh, in the not too distant future, this will then become part of a historical record, so, so to speak, allowed for the public. And uh, I had mentioned to you long time before that um, over the years, especially after the first books came out uh, in the 90s, we were not allowed to talk about Montauk Project on the media, especially. I would never be able to do a, an interview on that uh, because first of all, it was not allowed. And second of all, you were considered to be a mentally deranged person for discussing such a thing that never existed. And so of course now with the, the way things have developed, um, we can see that everything they told us in the Montauk project that would happen is now happening. And I put this in my, my first book called Montauk Alien Connection, which was written in the late 90s. And in that book, I had a list of all of the events they told us would happen in the future. And sadly, they're all happening. And so this plan what we see going on now in the world is not uh, uh, something that's uh, a surprise for anyone. This has been planned for quite a long time. So with uh, these people that jumped off the uh, Eldridge, uh, Albilac and Duncan Cameron, uh, so they jumped off in 1983 into- 1943. Oh, okay, so 1943 was the experiment. And of Philadelphia, yeah. Philadelphia, and then they, kind of jumped off the ship and they ended up in Montauk in 1983. Is that correct? So 1983. 
1983. So, okay, so 1983. So they end up in Montauk, and which is also the end of, so supposedly the end of the Montauk project. And so, how did that play out? I mean, how was, how, how were these people being dropped off there um, in 1983? How was that part of the Montauk project coming to an end? Two different stories, because when Al and Duncan arrived in 1983, they were interrogated and they were sent back in 1943. Because Duncan then in 1970 became the lead psychic on the so-called Montauk chair that you may have heard about, mm -hmm. which was also technology from Sirius A, which was able to pick up your uh, thought patterns, uh, amplify them, and then manifest them physically. Uh, so from 1970 to 1983, there were approximately 300,000 people, children and adults, that were used in various types of experiments. Most of them did not survive. By the early 1980s, the security, the oversight became a bit lax so that the strict rules and regulations involving the equipment and, uh, and operations were not as enforced as they had been in, in previous years. And so I believe you're asking how it came to an end. And so Duncan was part of an experiment that this experiment ended and he just fell asleep on the chair, but the equipment wasn't turned off. They were just not, paying attention, supposedly, or who knows, maybe this was a sabotage, I don't know. But he had a nightmare, Duncan, and the uh, equipment on the chair picked it up, the energy of his nightmare, connected it to an alternate reality where a, a, an energetic, for lack of a better term, creature or being existed, created a a worm, a, excuse me, a vortex to that location. And this creature came through into the Montauk project. It was not a physical creature that you could touch and so on. It was more like an energy being. Uh, you could see its outline, you could see the, the, the glow of its energy, but you, you, you couldn't hold it, for example. And if you shot at it, it bullets passed through. And so this creature started to wreak havoc uh, started to destroy the, the base. They turned off the and it still existed. It was drawing its energy source from its own dimension without the equipment. And so what they had to do was uh, create um, an energy field that was kind of like an antimatter uh, pulse as they destroyed the equipment and the creature suddenly froze it just froze in place and that's where it remained. We couldn't get rid of it and the project was destroyed. The equipment was destroyed and it took actually, I would say almost 10 years, 12 years for the energy field of this creature to dissipate so that it can no longer be seen. 
And uh, the base, of course, was closed off to the public the entire time. Uh, subsequently, they started destroying the surface buildings. Um, and interestingly, now, if you go there, the radar tower is enclosed by a fence so that you can't uh, get into it. And all of the surface buildings are now completely removed. And they have made a park out of the, this Camp Hero. And there's signs on the base that says you're not allowed to dig in the base because of possible live ordnance. And so I would ask, how could they open a base as a park knowing that there's explosive devices possibly buried underground? So obviously that's not true. They just don't want you digging to find entrances and so on. Um, they have cemented over many of the, all of the entrances. Um, you can't get any anymore. Um, and so uh, that's where we are now with the Montauk base. However, the experiments have continued elsewhere. There were places in the Western United States and in parts of Europe uh, where they have continued in a different uh, way. For example, in, uh, in Geneva, the Hadron Collider uh, is, is part of the extension of the Montauk project. It's an interdimensional device. That makes sense. So with this um, Montauk chair, it was an alien device uh, given to those running the Montauk project. So uh, we talk, uh, even though it was an Air Force station, I believe the Montauk project was run by the US Navy, if I recall correctly. So um, can you describe the Montauk chair? What, you know, what did it look like? I mean, was it an actual chair you, that could be used for a piloting a spacecraft that was repurposed for this Montauk project? I mean, how, how did it look? If you could imagine a very large dental chair, you know how you sit in a dental chair and you recline and it has these arms, but this chair had these um, head, I don't even know how to describe it. It, goes, it went around your head and it didn't touch your head, but it went around it and it would pick up it had sensors that would pick up your brain waves. And it took the brain waves and went to what uh, Preston described as a super Cray computer. And that could store the information, amplify the information, transmit it, and so on. Now, what you're describing for vehicles that actually, what you would call a UFO, um, there are many, many different kinds, by the way. Most of them are connected to the mind of the operator or what you'd call the pilot, so that there really are not so much controls on board. All the pilot has to do is think of where they want to go or do in the vehicle, which is a semi-living creature slash technology response. And it's all done electromagnetically and they learned how to go to any point in time and space and trillions of light years away in one second. And how you do that is, since every point in time and space is unique, there are not any two points that are identical because then they'd be the same point. So if you have a target location and you know the frequency of that location, 
then you have a person or a vehicle or thing that you want to send there, you put the frequency of the target location around what you're sending and there's an instant connection because they cannot be in two places at the same time. So that's how vehicles can travel through deep space in, sec in a second, really. Now, in the beginning, we had a different technology for the time travel. Look, if you can imagine a mirror, it looked like a mirror with, you could see energy waves through it and they would uh, program the device to a specific point in, in, the, in history, frequency time. And you would literally step through the mirror and when you got to the other, and it felt like you were passing through liquid, like a thicker liquid for a moment. And then when you pass through, you'd be on the, where you're supposed to be. And they were able to see you because you would be wearing an anchor device that would connect to the, locate, to the Montauk location. So they had a visual and audio connection to the person that, as they sent them. And they went through many different places. Um, there was one group of aliens that actually had, uh, for lack of a better term, a video. It's not really a video. It's more like a, a, a crystal that when you put it in the device, it showed you what was going on in historical times. So they were able to see Roman times and prehistoric times. Anything uh, was everything on this planet has been recorded, everything. And they have libraries of this information um, that hopefully one day will be revealed to the public. So is this like the, the chronovisor that some people have talked about? Uh, there's one uh, gentleman, uh, Andy Basciago from Washington State, who says that uh, he was involved in a program um, as a child. He, he talked about it as Project Pegasus and they, that there was a chronovisor involved. And that kind of sounds very similar to what you described, a, a technology that you could look at the remote past or even the future. I have heard of what he said. I wasn't involved in that particular experiment, but I believe it was an outgrowth mm -hmm. of the Montauk project. And um, quite frankly, um, when you travel through time, it has an effect on your body. Your physical body is not designed to do that. And after a bit of time, illnesses develop. For example, myself personally, for 29 years, I, I was physically blind. I couldn't see physical, I could only see energy. They had closed off, whether they did it purposely or accidentally, I'll never know. But they closed off the part of my brain that can physically see reality and only a part of my brain that perceived the energy. So I could still go outside, I could still do things. I couldn't see physically, but I knew what was there. I had a very difficult time driving, I might add, uh, especially um, when it was raining or snowing, because that has energy and that would be constantly, it was impossible for me to go anywhere in that condition. Uh, I, but that is how I learned to do scanning people's bodies. 
scanning their their health because I could see the the energy of the of the of the physical person. Uh, in 1999, I had a surgery to reconnect uh, the optic nerves to my brain, and it was somewhat successful vision, but I can see physically, but now it's an overlay. So if you have an overhead projector where you put different layers of, of, of information and that it builds, that's how I see. I see the energy, then I see the physical and so on. Uh, so it's a very difficult existence because you can't turn it off ever. And that's why it's difficult to sleep. Ever since Montauk Project, I really can't sleep very well. Um, it upset uh, my digestive system, uh, my eyesight, my hearing is not so good, and so on. It damages the, the nervous system of the body when you when you constantly do this. So how did you get involved in the Montauk Project? It sounds like uh, in 1970, this is when that 29-year period began for you. So were you like there from the inception? And, and how come you were involved in that? That's a very big question, Michael. And then I have to tell you my family background. And that is my great uncle, Yakov Sverdlov, was the first president of the Soviet Union. And, you know, it's a sordid history. My, my, uh, uh, they had, my great grandfather, Mikhail Sverdlov, had nine children and he groomed them to create what became Soviet Union. And he is the one that printed the uh, documents of the Red Army uh, back in 1917. And actually Yakov, my, my great uncle, ordered the assassination of the Tsar in Yekaterinburg. Yekaterinburg was then renamed Sverdlovsk after my family. And uh, so he became uh, very important in, in Soviet Union. Uh, he sent my grandfather, his brother, uh, to Britain to create the Communist Party there. And when my grandfather was successful in Britain, then he was sent to the United States to start the Communist Party in this country. My grandmother, Maya Svirmov, was a Soviet spy during World War II. And it's quite interesting to me now what's going on in Ukraine because my grandmother was, uh, was working for the communists against the Nazis and we kind of see the same thing happening again uh, incredibly in 2022. So uh, because of that background my family in the United States was extremely monitored and observed. Uh, my father was taken under a mountain near El Paso, Texas, where he was interrogated for his loyalties and then made to work on different uh, bases in the United States and Texas um, until I was born. When I was born, we were followed by Secret Service for many, many years. Um, and loyalty was always questioned, especially it was Cold War time. And for that reason, and to ensure that my family in this country remained loyal to the American government. I was used in the experiment in 1970 and onward uh, for that reason. 
And there were many other people under those uh, circumstances as well. For decades, our mail was opened, phone taps, house bug still is actually, but uh, that's how it was. And that became a normal way of life. Um, and it goes even before that, and this is a very sensitive issue. When I was a, a very small child, my mother took me up in a huge Victorian mansion for examination every week. Make a very long or short. I came to know this, his, his name was Dr. Green. And I knew that later on, this was Mengala that I was brought to for experimental purposes. My birth was unique. It's in medical books, so my mother told me. When she became pregnant, when she became into labor with me, her doctor sent her to a hospital that was not opened yet. It was under construction. And there was a compartment within that hospital where the doctors examined her and they said it was impossible for her to have become pregnant because she had no birth canal. It was not possible. And so they had to do surgery on her to create a birth canal so that I could be born. And they said this had never been done before. And, and incredibly, at that moment was a doctor who happened to be an expert in this uh, condition, who know that even though no one ever heard of it before. And he had been there and did the surgery on her. And I was monitored ever since then. So in retrospect, as an adult, as I think about my life, I now can see the sequences of how I went from one, one thing to another. Whereas a child, I, I was just traumatized, you understand? And I had many, many traumas in childhood through brutal examinations and so on. So when did you actually begin to be used in the Montauk project? What, what were the first memories you have of you being involved in there, uh, whether it was the time travel, whether it was vortex or whatever other psychic paranormal research they were doing? At night in my room, every night, almost every night, I would get up in the middle of the night and I didn't know why, and I had a sliding door closet in my bedroom. And when I opened the closet, there was a light. And when I stepped into the light, I was in Montauk. Of course, I didn't know it was Montauk at that time. But it was like a, a wormhole that was created from my bedroom to the Montauk project. And then I'd be brought back before the morning. Sometimes. I was there for days or weeks and then brought back to, let's say, five minutes after I left in the first place. So it looked like no time had passed. This happened quite, quite a bit. And uh, I had this feeling my parents knew what was going on uh, because of the medical procedures or, or examinations I experienced as a child. and. When I married my current wife, uh, she's, and I told her these stories, she said, well, you should ask your mother why she did that, you know? And, and I, I, I said to my mother constantly, I said, why did you take me to a dentist every week that would 
drill my teeth and do things without anesthesia. Why did you take me to this Dr. Green who would brutally examine me uh, in a sexual manner, by the way, to the point where I'd be screaming and you weren't in the room? And she denied it and denied and denied it until finally, as an adult, uh, when I moved to a different state, I had my teeth examined and the dentist said, who did this to you? This is completely unnecessary work. So I went back to my mother and I said, look, this is what the dentist said, I have proof. And then my mother said, well, it wasn't every Friday. Finally, an admission. Now she's passed away since then. My father won't discuss anything because of the, the terrible communistic uh, background of his family. And so over the years, I, I had to find the, the, the true information on my own. And I met many people who confirmed from the government and military. So, um, I, I, it, and I have a lot of anomalies in my body. The, the sound has just gone. Oh, could you repeat that? Oh, the sound just went. From what point? Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, when you were, just the last uh, 30 seconds. Ah, um, I, so I was talking about um, the brutal examinations uh, that I had gone through as a child that my mother finally confirmed. My father still to this day, he's not in his mind anymore, but he, he, he never would, would talk about it. And um, I had to find out on my own through the years meeting with military people, uh, intelligence agencies and so on that used to contact me and I never knew why until I finally found out the truth about all of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, one thing that happened that was quite interesting as a child, I would wake up in my bed and there was a window straight ahead and it was on the second floor and I would see this face, blonde haired man, white complexion looking at me and smiling and it would always terrify me many years later it, I, I saw it was it's Duncan Cameron and and I spoke to him and he said he says was my training to project to your house to observe you to 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 trigger you and so on and mind you Duncan was a very kind and wonderful person he was my oldest friend and uh, in those days, we were under, I will say control, but uh, threat if we didn't do what we were told. So I, I never blamed him for anything. And uh, we became very good friends until he passed away a couple of years ago. So exactly how old were you when you began uh, in the Montauk project? And, um, and do you remember any kind of um, trips or time travel experiments that you, you were involved in? Yes, I began when I was 13 and a half years old. And it lasted until I was approximately 26, 27, I can't remember exactly. It was August 12th, 1983 when it crashed. So I was a baby 26 and a half at that time. Um, and uh, I was sent physically actually uh, to the Middle East, uh, to Europe, uh, Caribbean. These are, these are physical trips uh, that I went on uh, to monitor um, 
activities, UFO activities, mind control activities in those locations, for example. But uh, there were also times uh, when I was sent uh, in, through the time portal to different locations. For example, and this is the part that many people kind of get flabbergasted about, is that I was sent back to the time of Christ. And I was sent back with a gun. And I was told to shoot him. And I remember walking to the base of this huge building with stone steps going all the way up. And there at the top of the platform, I don't know what you would call it, was, was the Christ person. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And it's like, I knew he knew why I was there. And I, I ran away. And I was take, brought back. And I was severely punished for not accomplishing that mission. Then about a year after that, I was sent back to the time when he was on the cross. And I was given a medical kit and I was told to extract blood from his toe while he was on the cross. And I did that and I brought it back. After that, they sent me to the underground of Mars where I was supposed to give the vial to the person who was there because they were creating a clone of Christ that was going to be used as the second coming at an appropriate time in the future. So that's what I tell people. If you see, they say Christ coming back, don't believe that because this is the clone. At least that was the plan back then. And we won't, you know, I think when the real one comes back, we will know, but uh, this first one that comes back is not the real one. So can you explain that? How, how would that work? I mean, uh, as far as I know, when a clone is created, it doesn't have consciousness. There needs to be a consciousness or a soul put into that clone for it to be able to operate. So you know, if they do have a cloned body of Jesus the Christ, you know, without a, a consciousness or a soul inhabiting that, would, would, it, would it be kind of more or less useless or could they still use it in some way? That is a question many people have stated to me, but I will tell you categorically, no living creature is devoid of a soul. It has a soul. Whose soul is it? They have a technology, and I remember very clearly that they can capture the soul personality of a person when they die, and they keep them in a containment field and they can use them as necessary. They can embed that soul into a, a cloned body or so on, or even into, even into a, an Android body, um, an AI, AI. They can do all of these things. That technology came from the little greys. Um, I don't like the term, but that's what they call them because they're basically like puppets. They're completely cloned. They're basically fetuses grown to, to larger size. And then uh, souls are embedded in them. And uh, they even have a hierarchy where there are certain grays that are higher level than other grays. And they use like a little doll thing to, to manipulate them. And so the government learned certain things from that group which by the way is not much around anymore. They were created by the reptilians as slaveries. 
they're not a natural race. And by the way, neither are human beings natural race. We are an artificial race that technically should not exist. So with the um, number of ET groups that were involved with the Montauk project, I mean, did you ever see some of those extraterrestrials at, at the uh, Montauk facility, whether they're reptilians, greys or Syrians? Absolutely. And I'll say all of the above. They were all there. There were beings also from Cassetti, uh, Rigel. Uh, there were beings from Andromeda Galaxy. There were these hideous, uh, I will call them man mantis type creatures, insectoid uh, creatures, which were very disturbing to me. Um, and there are, there are so, so many different beings. These, there were approximately 90 some odd different species that the government was interacting with. And that's, that has grown. Now, 2022, actually in the last, let's say 20 years, that's been reduced to just maybe five or six different groups that they interact with. The others have been, let's say, expelled by the reptilians because they don't want them interfering here. So with the reptilians in particular, what was it about the Montauk project that they were interested in? Were they, I know you mentioned 300,000 children and adults. Were they interested in the genetics and, and how genetics could be used for these kind of uh, time travel portal experiments? Or what else was it that the reptilians in particular in were interested in? The reptilian race, and by the way, there's more than one type of reptilian race. These were the, the from the Draco Empire. They have an agenda to fan out through creation and assimilate and to occupy all. For them, that is their lack of better term, holy mission of their existence. They believe they are the superior race and that all others are inferior and they need to either control them or change them. The reptilians, this particular race are androgynous, meaning male and female in the same body. And that's why, Michael, we are seeing uh, an agenda to create androgynous people on this planet, where boys are told they're girls and girls are told they're boys. And if you want to be a giraffe, you could be a giraffe. I mean, you could just, there's no identity anymore. When you remove the identity of a person, then you can control them because they don't know who they are. So you tell them who they are and you tell them what they can do. And that's what unfortunately is happening on our planet. It's for manipulation and control. Now you mentioned actually having been taken or going to Mars. So what, what do you remember about Mars? What was the facility like there? And did you actually get to spend time on the surface of Mars? Yes, and actually there's an atmosphere. It's not like what they've told you. There's plants growing, there are animals there. Um, it, it's not as like the earth, no. The atmosphere is much thinner, but it's there. So imagine like if you went to a very high mountain here on earth and you had a little trouble breathing, it's like that. So many of the, well, not many, all of the facilities 
they're either under the ground with artificial atmosphere or they're in a, a dome type surface area also with uh, atmosphere. Uh, but there's there's life on Mars. You know, when I hear about people like Elon Musk and, and so on, they say, oh, we're going to colonize Mars. I'm like, well, you're a little bit late for that one. because It's been that way a long time. And uh, you know that the Germans in 1937 had a mission to Mars. The Germans had technology that nobody knows about. And so that is like an alternate civilization that exists on our planet that is connected to our government, actually. What we have now is a battle between what, what people call left and the right, but it's really a battle between the spiritual side and the non-spiritual side. And I know that sounds religious, but that's what's happening. Right, well, with, the, with Mars and the atmosphere on Mars, I know on Earth, I mean, what is it? We have about like 78% nitrogen, about 20% oxygen, and then uh, carbon dioxide, we have trace elements of that. But on, on Mars, NASA says that, that it's 95% carbon dioxide, which if, if you breathe that in on Mars, I mean, theoretically, you, you would just collapse or you would die. So if you're able to breathe on the surface of Mars and it's just like being at an altitude of 12,000 feet or so, well, that's, that's telling us that, that, that what NASA is telling us is a massive lie, that Mars doesn't have that great amount of carbon dioxide. Absolutely correct. Not only that, but Venus is not as hot as they told you it was. I believe they told you the surface is 800, 900 degrees Fahrenheit, when in fact it's not. It's very livable. And in fact, uh, before the end of the Soviet Union, the Soviets sent a vehicle to Venus with a camera that was able to penetrate or send pictures through the cloud cover back to Earth. And they took pictures on the surface that were never the, exposed or revealed to the, the people because then the Soviet Union collapsed shortly thereafter. But in the last, say, eight, nine, 10 years, uh, the Russian uh, scientific uh, groups have re-examined these pictures and they have found se uh, seven domed areas on the surface of Venus. And they said they found three living creatures on the surface one looked like a reptilian or dinosaur, one looked like a giant spider, and the other looked like a scorpion. And they said, how do you know it wasn't a rock formation? This is because it moved. You can see in the, in, the, in, the, in the sequences of the photos, they have moved position and moved their bodies. They're, they were living. That information has been dropped. Uh, from the news. You cannot, uh, maybe you can find it on the internet, I don't know, but I know that this existed and, and maybe somebody can find it. Mm -hmm. So as far as the, the Nazi German presence on Mars, I mean, you, you mentioned that they had craft going there during or even before the Second World War. What, how did you learn about that? Was that something that you learned while you're on the Montauk project or was it something you learned after the fact? We learned this at Montauk because there were Nazi scientists in Montauk. They were the ones actually running the program, so to speak. We were told, we were indoctrinated, that if human beings 
were left to their own devices, they would kill them. They would annihilate the human race because we were told humans are uh, aggressive, violent, uh, destructive, and so on. And so that it was what we were doing was benefiting mankind to survive into the future. And that was the German mindset of, of what we were doing. And, um, and that's why we have such control on the, on the planet, because they don't believe humans can or should uh, develop their own systems, that they're dangerous. And in fact, the alien beings that ex exist, I would say a huge percentage of them, consider humans to be very dangerous and that this planet is like a very bad neighborhood that everybody should stay away from it sometimes i think they're right uh, but there are other beings for example the insectoid beings they want to annihilate humans they think humans are a pestilence that should be eliminated from existence there's many many different perspectives out there but this earth, if I can put in perspective to, to most of the alien civilizations, we are like Syria. We're like the Syria of the, of the galaxy. You know, very bad, dangerous place. Mm -hmm. So another place that the Nazis supposedly set up uh, bases was Antarctica. So while you were at the Montauk project, was there any information about Antarctica and the, and the Nazis there and, and the Nazis yeah. at Montauk? Yes, because several, not several, many of the children were sent there. Um, the ones that, and, and uh, mostly for, I, I don't like to say about sexual purposes and, 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 and slavery and so on. Um, that that Neuschwabenland in, in Antarctica was developed from 1938 to 1944 as the... Uh, paradise of the Führer, they called it. And there was New Berlin and New München and New Frankfurt, all, all these underground areas, but they were in caverns, natural caverns uh, that uh, were discovered and, and actually the reptilians were there and they were given to them. But we also knew that in ancient times, very ancient times, Antarctica was not uh, covered in ice and actually was quite tropical and had plant life and animal life and so on. I mean, it was only when the earth had flipped uh, in its axis that uh, became frozen like that. And that happened approximately 10,500 BC uh, that that happened. But the Syrians, in conjunction with the reptilians, created a technology to prevent that from ever happening again. In the 19... 60s, I believe 63, 64, NASA discovered a black colored satellite hovering far up above the North Pole. And they called it the Dark Knight. That was like a, a term they used for the Dark Knight. In 1965, they discovered underneath Baffin Island and Ellesmere Island in the northern part of Canada approximately 100 kilometers under the ground, huge cylinders that had been put there, obviously not by human beings. These cylinders 
were connected energetically to this dark night satellite in the North Pole. So in effect, this satellite, it's kind of like a, a puppeteer holding the puppet. It's preventing the earth from going sideways. So it will never shift again. It's like a, 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 an anchor, if you will. That's what the dark night is for. Interesting. So these cylinders that are connected to the dark night or the black night, I've heard that term used as well. Are they, are they must be big. I mean, if they are anchoring the earth in some way, they must be massive cylinders. They're, they are approximately 60 kilometers wide and 100 kilometers long. Very big. And, and so they are anchored into the earth's crust and somehow this stabilizes it to prevent a, a future earth change or pole shift. Correct. That's correct. And you can, you will notice if you study this, you know, we have uh, the, the, uh, the electromagnetic poles, yes, that sometimes shift from side to side. And so you will notice that when, when the electromagnetic pole starts to shift or, or, or slide, it stops and then it starts to go back to, again. So it's kind of just hovering back and forth like this, anchored to this satellite. Another place that the uh, Germans apparently set up a base was on the far side of the moon. People yes. called it Lunar Operations Command. Do you know anything about that? Yes, uh, we're not allowed to go there. Uh, the, the base itself, it was photographed and it looks, it's in the shape of a swastika. And it's in a crater dome. And it was very interesting because when, when NASA first photographed this with uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, craft that they had sent to the dark side of the moon, um, and it was revealed, um, the pictures were intercepted by some other countries on the Earth. And uh, they showed this, the, the uh, the, the swastika-shaped building. And NASA said that they apologized for the offensive image, but it was from a glitch in the camera. And it wasn't actually that, you understand? Mm -hmm. Just a cover-up. And, and quite frankly, a lot of the pictures, if not all, from the moon and Mars had been doctored up to look like rock and dirt, when in fact there are buildings and, and vehicles there. And that we know that NASA has done that. Mm -hmm. So in 1972 was the last Apollo mission, the last manned mission to the moon. Some people say that uh, we were warned off, NASA was warned off. So do you, do you know anything about that? Yes, that was part of what we learned in Montauk Project, because instead of sending a vehicle, we would send the person through a wormhole. And in fact, in uh, Australia, in, um, in um, Pine Gap, I believe is the name of it, in Central Australia, it's an American base. It's not, no Australians even allowed there. And they have a wormhole from there to underground Mars. You can go directly from Australia to Mars in a matter of seconds. And so uh, that uh, has been established for many decades as well. I remember when I was uh, working in the, in the outback of uh, Victoria, uh, so far outside of Melbourne, um, 
the uh, my friends said to me, "Come, come outside. I want to show you something." It was we're in the middle of nowhere, and I looked up in the sky, and it, it was like a UFO highway, all all heading towards Central Australia. And he says, "Watch this." He says, "Think about look look at them and think about it one moment." And I looked at that, and it stopped. And I was like, "It's listening to my mind." It recognized that I'm looking at it and it stopped. And then it continued. It was the most incredible experience. And Michael, then we went to a restaurant one night after I was working in Melbourne and we went to a restaurant on the way back towards Bendigo. And uh, the rest, it was very late and we were the last people in the restaurant and they were putting the chairs up but they said we could have coffee and so on. And so I was sitting on this side of the table and my friends were sitting on the other side and this man and woman walked in and they sat on the other side of the restaurant and took the chairs down and sat. And my friend who was very mentally or psychically sensitive, he, went, he says, they're looking at me. They're strange, they're looking at me, I feel them. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And I looked over to the table and the man turned around and looked at me and his eyes went black. I was like freaked out. And the woman looked and smiled. Her eyes went black. And then we, we left the restaurant. <laughs> I understand. Um, so the connection between Montauk and the CERN project in Geneva is a very interesting one. So, you, I mean, you mentioned it briefly before, but, you know, I mean, we, we know that uh, CERN has this huge particle accelerator and people speculate, well, is this to create a kind of black hole and uh, that could somehow be manipulated to affect the Earth timeline? So, so you know, what is CERN really about? CERN is an interdimensional uh, portal. Uh, we learned at Montauk that there are infinite realities. Every possibility that you can think of exists. And how did we learn this? because they had attempted to send people back in time to change history. And they found out that you can't change history. Whatever is in this timeline in the so-called past must remain. If you alter an event, then it becomes another timeline, parallel to this, but not the same as this. And so they realized that in every possibility of existence you can find something so for example the hadron collider in cern they know that there are realities where the nazis maintain control there are realities where atlantis never was destroyed there are realities where humans never existed and so on and so on so what hadron collider is doing is identifying alternate realities that enhance and improve the position of the deep state. And what they are attempting to do is collapse those realities into this one, blend, merge the reality where they have maintained their power. That's the idea of Hadron Collider. And that's why it's been sabotaged several times by certain groups who are against that agenda. Outside our solar system or surrounding it, 
is a region called Kuiper Belt. And after that is the Oort Belt before you go into deep space. You may recall several years ago, they reclassified the planet Pluto because they said, oh, it's not a planet, it's an object in the Kuiper Belt. Well, actually, so is Neptune, and so is part of Uranus, but they didn't reclassify them because Pluto is actually not a natural object. It is an artificial observation post that came into our uh, solar system in 1930. And uh, it's not from here. By the way, neither is our moon. Our moon is artificial as well. And so there are beings in the Kuiper belt, literally surrounding our solar system as a containment, because as I've mentioned earlier, we are considered a very dangerous species that must be contained or eliminated. So there's going to be an actual, I should say invasion. I don't know if that's the right word because we already invaded, but a different kind of invasion by those who are going to want to change what's going on here. I will add that those who are in power on our planet now, both in this government and others, have an agenda that they want to complete in the next two years. And that agenda is not so pleasant for humanity, but it's one that might um, prevent World War III and four and so on. And so uh, my feeling is in the, well, in the Kuiper Belt, there are insectoids, there are humanoids, there are etheric beings, everything you can imagine. It's like a, a United Nations of species who are saying, okay, what do we do at this, this place? We can't leave them like this, but we can't leave either. We are in, they consider that their worlds are in danger from us. Because as you know, there are fleets that have been developed in the past by the Nazis and so on that are a danger to those out there in the universe. And so they need to do something about this. And unfortunately, the next two years will be very stressful, disturbing, and so on until things are put back into a condition where we can move forward. Well, I remember there was a, a series that Amazon aired called Man in the High Castle, where they was based on a short story by Philip Dick, the sci-fi writer. And it, and it talked about this scenario where you actually had uh, a reality where the Nazis won the Second World War. And the series showed also the parallel reality where uh, the, the Allies won the Second World War. And it was like the, the, there were temporal agents from that Nazi reality trying to influence our reality to be more like, like it. So it sounds like that story, uh, that series, Man in the High Castle, is a kind of so soft disclosure trying to introduce people. But it sounds like from what you're saying that this is, this is happening right now. And, you know, and that kind of like raises the question, well, this whole uh, World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, you know, that, that kind of Nazi-esque quality that he radiates it's like well is it sounds like this is exactly what is happening and the world economic forum is like a nazi front for kind of like geoengineering earth so that we can move into this 
into this parallel real reality where the Nazis won? My opinion is they did win. <laughs> they just changed the venue of their location, their central location. But, you know, since the late 1940s, they've been in control of American government and even uh, European governments. And so, uh, you know, uh, in 1946-47, there was Project High Jump, where the Americans sent a fleet to Antarctica and was pretty much destroyed by the Nazis there. After that, 1952, you remember, there were these overflights over Washington, D.C. of these vehicles that they said were swamp cast, it was an atmospheric anomaly and so on. But these were forthright uh, vehicles. And they basically, we're flying over your capital and you cannot stop us. We won. You understand? And that's when agreements were made and they were brought into the military, they were brought into the aeronautical uh, uh, corporations and so on and so on. And th that's what we have now. We have basically uh, the Western world run by the Fourth Reich. And this was acknowledged to me by someone very hot in the government. That's, uh, that, that is always a kind of a shock to hear. I mean, others have uh, said similar things, but it's always refreshing to hear it from a completely new perspective that you got this information during your time at the Montauk project in the 1970s and and so and even recently Michael even recently and I can't go too much detail but there's there someone that I deal with very high up and he says to me well you know Stuart there is the fourth Reich and they are here and the, and, and he just told me these things and I'm like yes I know I put them in my books I know about them and uh, unfortunately people won't believe it but with what's going on now, they are going to believe it. Yeah, it does seem that we're going through an unprecedented global awakening with all of these efforts to remove civil liberties and to uh, mm. really shift power away from the United States. Well, I mean, really, I mean, the, the agenda seems to be to collapse the United States as a functional nation state and make everything... Uh, you know, move everything over to China, the communist China, to make it the new global hegemon. That's correct. And I was also told that the future government will be a blend of Nazism and communism. Well, that takes me to this question about uh, these 20-year cycles. Um, uh, I, I interviewed Peter Moon a few weeks ago, and he said that uh, the twenty-year cycle is a is a natural biorhythm of the Earth. And you know, the, in the Montauk project, you know, it was nineteen forty-three. Uh, I guess something happened in sixty-three, but then there was eighty-three, two thousand and three, and and next year, of course, is twenty twenty-three. So, you know, what 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 does that mean for next year? I mean, how important is that in terms of this Earth's natural biorhythm of 20 years when these portals seem to open up or reconnect? I'm going to tell you, I was told just recently that the big change will be 2024. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't initiate uh, the year before, but in 2024, everybody will know who is in charge on this planet. And I was told not everybody's going to like it, and there's going to be casualties. I was also told, you want to know what it's going to be like? Look at Ukraine right now. That is the precursor for the rest of the world as far as the synthesis of different powers 
and the result there will be extrapolated globally. Interesting. So are you optimistic or pessimistic about our future? Are, are we going to implode as a global civilization or are we going to enter a golden age? <laughs> Michael, that's a very difficult question. You know, I believe it or not, despite everything, I, I, I do consider myself to be a very spiritual person. And I believe despite the agendas of the those who think they're in control, God has his own agenda. And ultimately that is what will win. And that's what I'm looking forward to. So it really is uh, unpredictable. No one really knows what's going on because I know there's a lot of people putting out narratives out there, you know, whether it's positive or whether it's negative. But at the end of the day, you say it, it really can be uh, a wild card up until the very end, and we're not going to know. And 2024 seems to be the end date. Yes. Well, let's say not the end date. Let's say it's the it's the beginning of some new system. Mm -hmm. um, and I was told that might last 30 or 40 years. But again, I, and it, uh, to translate something, they say, Man supposes and God disposes. So no matter what these people's agenda can be, it doesn't mean it has to be that way. That it, there's other factors that people don't, if they would bring up the, 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 the spiritual energy within them, all of this can change. It could change. And that's one of the realities that exist. You know, we can, we can do that. So what about the extraterrestrial factor? How do you think that's going to play out? I mean, is there going to be a big announcement soon? Is there going to be a false flag alien invasion event? Are the aliens going to just appear and, and like uh, awaken humanity? What, what do you think is going to happen? So I asked about that to this person who knows it. I said, when are they going to announce the truth? He said, oh, not for another 10 years. Until then... It will be cover stories. And really, it's because the aliens themselves don't want to be revealed. They don't want humans to really know about them yet because we're dangerous. And humans have technology now that rivals the alien technology. So we have become quite a liability to them. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So... Um... If, if people want to find out more about your work, your, get your books, what, what do they do? Expansions.com is my website. We're also on Facebook and um, Vimeo. I do a podcast um, every week about the news and I, I tell people what the news is really about. Um, I, I send that to you. Uh, also, you can distribute as you wish. Uh, but expansions.com, and we have our books, our videos, our blogs. Uh, we have webinar every Wednesday evening. It's a one-stop shop for everything that you want to know about. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Stuart, for coming on the show and, and sharing your tremendous uh, knowledge and experience and memories about uh, the Montauk Project and what that means for us today. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. 
You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.